This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening. Good evening. So nice to see all of you dressed up. The Sabbath has begun. Praise the Lord. Do you look forward to the Sabbath? I look forward to the Sabbath, even though pastors work harder on Sabbath than any other day. But it's sacred work, so it's allowable. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, more than ever we need your help tonight. We need the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the pages of your holy book. The message that we are going to study is solemn, important. And I ask, Lord, that you will enlighten our minds, that you will open our hearts to receive the message that you have for us. We thank you, Father, for the promise of your presence. And we know that you have answered this prayer because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before the creation of the angels, the inhabitants of the other worlds, and human beings on this earth, the Father and the Son had a very unique relationship. I would like, as we begin our study this evening, to go over nine characteristics of the relationship between the Father and the Son before anything was created in the universe. The first point that I want to underline is that the Father and the Son are two distinct individuals, two separate persons. I would like to give biblical basis as well as spirit of prophecy confirmation. In John 17 and verse 5, Jesus prayed, and now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the Son was with the Father. If he was with the Father, he was not the Father. In John 17 and verse 22, Jesus continues his prayer, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that is the disciples, that they may be one just as we are one. The Father and the Son are two distinct individuals. In Ministry of Healing, page 422, Ellen White makes this profound statement, the unity that exists between Christ and his disciples does not destroy the personality of either. They are one in purpose, in mind, in character, but not in person. It is thus that God and Christ are one. So the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. And yet, because they are intimately related one to the other, the Bible describes them as one. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. So you have two distinct persons, but they are one in the sense of character, in the sense of unity. In the Youth's Instructor for December 16, 1897, Ellen White makes this remarkable statement. This is how it reads. From eternity... There was a complete unity between the Father and the Son. They were two, yet little short of being identical. Did you hear that? They were two, but what? Little short of being identical. Two in individuality, yet one in spirit, heart, and character. Two but in perfect unity. The third characteristic of the relationship between the Father and the Son that I would like to share is that both the Father and the Son are equally God. 
They are both 100% divine. Jesus is not a lesser God. Jesus is equal to the Father. John 1 verses 1 and 2 makes that very clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, but God. Ellen White, always in harmony with Scripture, states as much. In Councils to the Church, page 76, she says God is the Father of Christ. Christ is the Son of God. To Christ has been given an exalted position. He has been made equal with the Father. All the counsels of God are opened to His Son. In the book God's Amazing Grace, page 160, she once again emphasizes that the Father and the Son are equal. They are both God. This is how it reads. This Savior was the brightness of His Father's glory and the express image of His person. He possessed divine majesty, perfection, and excellence. He was equal with God. And one more statement in Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 38 and 39. Christ was the Son of God. He had been one with Him before the angels were called into existence. He had ever stood at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus Christ is a distinct personality from the Father. He is one with the Father. He is equal with the Father, fully and completely God in every sense of the word. The fourth characteristic is that there is a special intimacy between the Father and the Son. And this intimacy is expressed by stating that the Son is in the bosom of the Father. That indicates closeness and intimacy, like when we hug a little baby close to our bosom. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, we find that description in Scripture that says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Ellen White states as much in the Review and Herald for February 28, 1888, when Ellen White discusses Jesus coming to this earth sent by his father, she states, the father permitted him to leave the bosom of his love, the adoration of the angels to suffer shame, insult, humiliation, hatred, and death. So this intimacy is expressed as the Son being in the bosom of the Father. The fifth characteristic that I would like to share concerning the relationship between the Father and the Son in eternity past is that Jesus is the express image of his Father. Ellen White, in the devotional book Lift Him Up, page 24, had this to say, The Son of God was next in authority to the great lawgiver. Remember that. The Son of God was next in authority to the great lawgiver. He was in the express image of his Father, not in features alone, but in perfection of character. So very clearly, Ellen White says that he was the express image of his Father. Incidentally, the normal word for image when it refers to us in the New Testament, that we are made in the image of God, is the word ekon, where we get the word icon from. But this word is not that word when it refers to Christ being the image of the Father. The word is a different word. It's the Greek word charakter that we get our word character from. It's used only of Christ in this one verse in Scripture. So Jesus is the express image of the Father. The sixth characteristic that I would like to share with you is that Jesus is the Father's second self. You know very well in John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The Son 
is the second self of the Father. Where the Son is, is the character of the Father. In a statement that I read once before, in Youth Instructor, December 16, 1897, I read that statement again. From eternity, there was a complete unity between the Father and the Son. They were two, yet little short of being identical. Two in individuality, yet one in spirit, heart, and character. So, Jesus is the Father's and was the Father's in eternity, second self. The seventh characteristic that I would like to share with you concerning the relationship between the Father and the Son is that the Father and the Son are composed of the same substance because Jesus is the Son of the Father. They're co-substantial in other words. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 it says that Jesus was in the form of God. That word form in Greek means the substance of God, the very stuff that God is made of. Jesus is composed of that. Ellen White confirms this point. In Signs of the Times, November 27, 1893, she is commenting on the verse, I and my Father are one. She says the words of Christ were full of deep meaning as he put forth the claim that he and the Father were of one substance, possessing the same attributes. Father and Son were of the same substance, co-substantial in other words. In the Review and Herald, April 5, 1906, Ellen White also states, Christ was God essentially and in the highest sense. Now when she says essentially, it's not like I say, well, he's essentially like me. No, the word essentially means in his essence, in his substance. Jesus is one with the Father. He's co-substantial with the Father. Would it be too much to say that the Son has the Father's DNA? The eighth characteristic that I would like to share with you is that the glory of Jesus is the glory of his Father shining in him. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus is referred to as the brightness of the Father's glory. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we are told, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Now notice, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus is the glory of his Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, we're told this, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glory of the Father. Ellen White confirms this point as well. In the book Medical Ministry, page 19, Ellen White explains in uh, the condition of Jesus before his incarnation, he was the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. In Christ's Object Lessons, page 115, she repeats the same thought when she states, In Him, that is in Jesus, is gathered all the glory of the Father, the fullness of the Godhead. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of His person. One more statement on this point. Testimonies for the Church, volume 2, page 200. She states, the Savior was the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person. He possessed divine majesty, perfection, and excellence. He was equal with God. The ninth characteristic that I would like to share with you is that even though the Father and the Son are on a level of equality as persons, the Son from eternity past has been subject to his father's authority as his head. That is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 where it says clearly that the father is the head of Christ. God is the head of Christ. And so Christ in eternity past even before the creation of the angels was subject to his father's authority even though he was equal 
to his father in eternity past in the present and in eternity future both the father and the son have authority and dominion but the father has absolute authority and the son has delegated authority even though they are equal never has Jesus ever acted independently of his father he has ever been subject to his father's authority and his father's will you might be thinking, well, that, that happened since the incarnation that he was subject to his father's will, even though he's equal to his father. Not so. Let me read you a couple of statements from the spirit of prophecy. The first one is found in Story of Redemption, page 13. You know, Lucifer in heaven said, hey, Jesus and me are, are equal, we're the same, and yet Jesus is favored and I'm not favored. So the father had to call a meeting in heaven of all of the heavenly council to explain the position of his son. This is before the creation of the world. Notice this statement. The great creator, referring to the Father, assembled the heavenly host that he might, that is that the Father might, in the presence of all of the angels, confer special honor upon his Son. The Son was seated. Was Jesus the Son already? Yes. The Son was seated on the throne with the Father. And the heavenly throng of holy angels was gathered around them. The Father then made known, notice who's making known. The Father then made known that it was ordained by himself, that is by the Father, that Christ his Son should be equal with himself. So that wherever was the presence of his Son, it was as his own presence. The word of the Son was to be obeyed as readily as the word of the Father. His Son... He had invested with authority to command the heavenly host. What had the Father done? He, had, he is the one that had invested the Son with authority to command the heavenly host. And then she continues saying, especially was his Son to work in union with himself in the anticipated creation of the earth and every living thing that should exist upon the earth. His Son listen carefully, his son would carry out his will and his purposes, that is the father's, but would do nothing of himself alone. The will, the father's will would be fulfilled in him. Clear. Another statement that we find in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 36, adds some details. We're told there, the king of the universe Notice this is a reference to God the Father. The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son and show the relation he sustained to all the created beings. The son of God shared the father's throne and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled both. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the king that's the Father, the King declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into his purposes. And to him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of his will, that is, of the Father's will. The Son of God had wrought the Father's will, listen carefully, the Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of all the hosts of heaven. When, who, who created the angels? Jesus. Whose will was he performing? The will of his Father. So once again, the Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of all the hosts of heaven. And to him, as well as to God, their homage and allegiance were due. Christ was still to exercise divine power in the creation of the earth and its inhabitants. But in all this, he would not seek power or exaltation for himself contrary to God's plan, but would exalt the Father's glory and execute His purposes of beneficence and love. Is that clear? Crystal, if you read it with an open mind and an open heart. You know, even after Jesus became incarnate, He was still subject to the Father's will. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, 
right before the Great Commission. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Who was the only one that could have given him the authority? Only his Father. And the Bible teaches that in eternity future, the Son will still be subject to his Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28 says, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I'm not going where you think I'm going. I know many of you are saying, well, Pastor Bohr is going to deal with women's ordination. I'm not going there. You say, where are you going then? Well, let's try and get there. On earth, God worked for the better part of six days and made everything perfect and beautiful. Now we're transitioning to the earth. As the crowning act of creation, God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man came alive. Then God told Adam to name the animals. And he did so, but he noticed that each animal had its counterpart except himself. We're told in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So God applied to Adam general anesthesia. The Bible calls it a deep sleep and performed the first surgery of history as far as we know. And the incision left no scar. And from the rib, close to Adam's bosom, he created the woman. And the Bible says that God then brought her to man as his gift. We're told in Genesis 2 verse 22, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now Adam kind of wakes up from his slumber, opens his eyes. I'm sure he opened them real wide. I'm sure that his mouth fell open. <sighs> One like me! And God explained to him that Eve had been created from himself. She was co-substantial with him. She had been created from him and for him. Now we've all read that text in Genesis where it speaks about the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, Then God, Ellen White identifies this person as the Father, Then God said, she says he's speaking to his Son, Jesus Christ, Then God said, Let us make man, how? in our image according to our likeness. Now we usually think of the image of God as an individual thing. Adam was made in the image of God physically, mentally, and spiritually. Eve was made in the image of God physically, mentally, and spiritually. We think of the image of God as an individual thing, but really what Genesis 1.26 is explaining is that the relationship between Adam and Eve was to reflect the relationship between the Father and the Son. It was an exhibition on a smaller scale of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Let's take a look at the relationship between Adam and Eve. The creation story makes it very clear that Adam and Eve were two distinct persons. Because we are told they will no longer be two, but one. They were two individuals, just like the Father and the Son are two. And yet we are told in the creation story that God pronounced Adam and Eve the two, what? One. In the sense of unity. In the sense of closeness and intimacy. They were two but one, like the Father and the Son are two but one. Adam and Eve stood on a level of equality. They were equally human. 
And both are referred to with the generic word man. Eve was not a lesser order of humanity. She was as much human as Adam was human, just like the Son was as much God as the Father is God. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46, Ellen White explains, Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal to be loved and protected by him. Just like the Father and Son are equal, both God, Adam and Eve were created equal, both human. There was a special intimacy between Adam and Eve. Eve, so to speak, was taken from the bosom of Adam. In fact, you know in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 6, the wife is called the wife of thy bosom. Interestingly enough. So just as the son is in the bosom of the father, Eve was in the bosom of Adam. Ellen White explains in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46, Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam. That's pretty close to the heart. It's pretty close to the bosom signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal to be loved and protected by him. Eve, because she was taken from Adam, was in the image of Adam. Of course, she was in the image of God through Adam. Just like Jesus, the Son is the image of the Father. Just like Jesus is the second self of the Father, Eve was the second self of Adam. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 46, Helen White explains, a part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that it should exist in this relation. Eve was also co-substantial with Adam. She was flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. Just that the son is co-substantial with the father. In fact, Adam said in Genesis 2.23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The woman was also the glory of man like the son is the glory of the father. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, For a man indeed ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Are you seeing the parallels? Amazing parallels. The last parallel, parallel also holds true. Even though Adam and Eve were created equal, Eve was created to be subject to the authority of Adam. We don't like that. Because the word authority is a nasty little word. The word submission is a nasty little word. Because we live in a sinful world and we look at those negatively. But the Bible does not. Jesus was subject to his parents. That wasn't a bad thing. That was a good thing. The word submission is used in a positive sense in Scripture as long as it follows God's plan. And so Adam was created to be the head and Eve was to be subject to the leadership of Adam. Now let's talk about Eve's sin. Do you know what Eve's sin was? Yeah, she ate the fruit. I know that. But it was deeper than that. You see, Eve's sin consisted of two parts. Number one, she acted independently of Adam. And number two, even though she was human, she wanted to ascend to the height of God. Her sin was primarily selfishness. In other words, 
She acted independently of Adam, even though God told her, stay with Adam. And she wanted to ascend to the height of God. Ellen White explains in Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 53 and 54, the angels had cautioned Eve to beware of separating herself from her husband while occupied in their daily labor in the garden. He had cautioned Eve not to separate. With him, she would be in less danger from temptation than if she were alone. But absorbed in her pleasing task, she unconsciously wandered from his sight. Independence. Story of Redemption, page 32. Eve unconsciously at first separated from her husband in her employment. When she became aware of the fact, she felt that there might be danger, but again, the thought, she thought herself secure. Even if she did not remain close to the side of her husband, she had wisdom and strength to know if evil came and to meet it by herself, independently of Adam. That was Eve's sin. Wanting to ascend from being a human to being God and acting independently of Adam, her head. What was Adam's sin? You're saying, what does this have to do with the cross? Just wait. This is very intimately related with the cross. What was Adam's sin? I know he ate the fruit. But his sin was deeper than just eating the fruit. You see, like God the Father, Adam had a most precious possession, Eve. And the big question that Adam had to face was, am I willing to give up Eve, who is one with me? How can I give up the one who is my image, the image of God through him, my same substance and my glory? How could I tear from myself the one who is close to my bosom? How can I live without this person that I love so much? He could not conceive of being separated forever from the one that was most precious to him. He was selfish. He was thinking only of himself. Ellen White describes the anguish and the agony as Adam struggled with the decision of whether he would give up the most precious thing that he had, that he had an intimate relationship with. The book Conflict and Courage, page 16, Ellen White explains there was a terrible struggle in his mind. He mourned that he had permitted Eve to wander from his side. But now the deed was done. He, he must be separated from her. See, the anguish was whether he was willing to be separated. He must be separated from her whose society had been his joy. How could he have it thus? Adam had enjoyed the companionship of God and of holy angels. He had looked upon the glory of the Creator. He understood the high destiny open to the human race. Should they remain faithful to God? He knew that if it was faithful, the human race would be holy and the world will be filled with righteous beings. She continues saying, he understood the high destiny open to the human race should they remain faithful to God. Yet all of these blessings were lost of in the fear of losing that one gift which in his eyes outvalued every other. Love, gratitude, and loyalty to the Creator all was overborne by love to Eve. She was a part of himself and he could not endure the thought of separation. Could he give up his precious Eve at the risk of being separated from her forever? We've studied the relationship of the father and the son. We've noticed that they were two distinct individuals. That they were one, however, that the Son was the same substance, is the same substance as the Father, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. We've noticed that Jesus is in the bosom of his Father. Jesus is the Father's second self. 
He's the express image of his Father. He's a reflection of the Father's glory. The most precious thing that the Father has in the universe. His precious Son. Now we bring this to a divine level. The Father was faced with a similar decision as Adam. Am I willing to give up my son, the most prized possession in heaven, the most intimate partner? Am I willing to give up my son at the risk of eternal loss? Or do I keep him to myself? Are you seeing the parallel? It was a struggle for the father to give up his son. We find in Signs of the Times, November 4, 1908, before the Father, this is when Jesus is in heaven, the human race has sinned. Before the Father, he pleaded in the sinner's behalf while the host of heaven awaited the result with an intensity of interest that words cannot express. Long continued was that mysterious communing. Jesus is before his Father, the council of peace for the fallen sons of men. The plan of salvation had been laid before the creation of the earth. For Christ is a lamb foreordained before the foundation of the world. And now listen to this. Yet it was a struggle even with the king of the universe to yield up his son to die for the guilty race. It was a what? A struggle even for the king of the universe. He had to make the same decision that Adam made. In Desire of Ages, page 49. Ellen White explained, God permitted his son to come, a helpless babe, subject to the weakness of humanity. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it, now listen carefully, at the risk of failure and eternal loss. The father was willing to risk eternal failure and loss of his son. She continues saying, the heart of a human father yearns over his son. He looks into the face of his little child and trembles at the thought of life's peril. He longs to shield his dear one from Satan's power, to hold him back from temptation and conflict, to meet a bitterer conflict and a more fearful risk. God gave his only begotten son that the path of life might be made sure for our little ones. Herein is love. Wonder, O heavens, and be astonished, O earth. Ellen White explains in Christ's Object Lessons, page 196, for our redemption, heaven itself was imperiled. What? For our redemption, heaven was imperiled. What does the word imperiled mean? I looked it up in the dictionary. It means to put at risk of being harmed injured or destroyed, to endanger, to jeopardize. God jeopardized heaven itself when, Je when Jesus was sent to this earth. So the Father had the same basic choice only on a much grander scale that Adam had. But God did the opposite of Adam. He was willing to give up his most prized possession the one he was intimate with, at the risk of losing him forever. Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In Review and Herald, it's good to hear those amens. Help me preach. Review and Herald, July 9, 1895. Listen to this statement. Ellen White says, The Eternal Father, the unchangeable one gave his only begotten son, tore from his bosom him who was made in the express image of his person and sent him down to the earth to reveal how greatly he loved mankind. You remember the statement that I read a little while ago that it was a struggle for the king of the universe to give up his son? Let me finish that statement now. She says, but, after stating 
that it was a struggle even for the king of the universe to yield up his son to die for a guilty race, she says, but ah, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, the mystery of redemption. The love of God for a world that did not love him. Who can know the depths of that love which passeth knowledge through endless ages? Immortal minds seeking to comprehend the mystery of that incomprehensible love will wonder and adore. So the father's struggle was similar to the struggle of Adam. What, a, what about Eve's sin? Do you remember what Eve's sin was? Wanting to ascend to the heights of God and acting independently of Adam, her head. Did Jesus face those same two dilemmas? Listen carefully, folks. Jesus was God. But instead of desiring to ascend, he was willing to descend. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 and verse, verses 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Instead of Jesus saying, I'm going to go up. He was up there and he says, I'm going to go down. Just the opposite of what Eve did. And instead of Jesus acting independently of his father, Jesus always said, Father, your will be done. I will do what you say as my head. I will do what you say as my leader. I will perform your will. Not my will be done, but yours. He did just the opposite of Eve. That's why I say that the relationship between the father and the son is reflected on a small scale in the relationship between Adam and Eve. So the father was willing to do what Adam was unwilling to do. Give up what was most precious to him at the risk of eternal loss and eternal separation. And the son was willing to do what Eve had been unwilling to do, come down at the risk of failing and being separated from his father for eternity. You know what's most amazing to me? That the father and the son would have been willing to take this risk for one. For one! Look at the person next to you. Jesus would have given his life for that one. Usually you say, oh, he would have given it for me. Yeah. But we need to think that he would have given it for others too. Because we should focus on others. Those are the ones that Jesus focused upon. What is the value of a soul? The value could only be understood by the risk that the father and the son were willing to take. To save one. The father and the son would have been willing to save only one soul. And we're not talking about sophisticated and refined sinners like us. We're talking about murderers, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, liars, idolaters. Jesus would have come to die for one of those which we consider to be the scum of the earth but which God considers precious. Allow me to read you some statements from Ellen White on the value of a soul. God's Amazing Grace, page 173. By the way, before I read that statement, do you know that Ellen White says that the value of the soul is infinite? The soul is of infinite value? How do you buy something that is of infinite value only by paying an infinite price. Listen to these statements. 
the wealth of earth dwindles into insignificance. The wealth of earth dwindles into insignificance when compared with the worth of a single soul for whom our Lord and Master died. He who weigheth the hills in scales and the mountains in a balance regards a human soul as of infinite value. One soul is of infinite value. In the book Testimonies for the Church, volume 3, page 186, Ellen White explains the soul is of infinite value. Its worth can be estimated only by the price paid to ransom it. You want to know how much a soul is worth? Look at Jesus, what he gave, what the Father did. Then you know what the value is. Once again, the soul is of infinite value. Its worth can be estimated only by the price paid to ransom it. Calvary, Calvary, Calvary will explain the true value of the soul. Here's another one, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, pages 21 and 22. One soul is of more value to heaven than a whole world of property, houses, lands, and money. For the conversion of one soul, we should tax our resources to the utmost. Ministry of Healing, page 135, Ellen White presents this theme in all of her writings. She says, if but one soul would have accepted the gospel of His grace, Christ would, to save that one, have chosen His life of toil and humiliation and His death of shame. Christ's Object Lessons, page 196, Ellen White explains the value of a soul who can estimate. Would you know its worth? Go to Gethsemane. And there watch with Christ through those hours of anguish. When he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, look upon the Savior uplifted on the cross. Hear that despairing cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look upon the wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. Remember, listen carefully, remember that Christ risked all for our redemption, heaven itself was imperiled at the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner, Christ would have laid down his life. You may estimate the value of a soul. And so I want to make a call this evening. The call is very simple. The group that we have in this place has unlimited potential with the power of God. The devil knows that, that the hope of the church is found in the youth and in the young adults. Because you have the energy, you have clear minds, you have the strength, you have, you have the desire, you have the vision. And so what the devil has done, he's, he's caused all sorts of distractions to keep us from doing that which is important. I want to challenge all of those who are gathered here this evening, I want to ask, how many of you, as you've seen what the Father and the Son were willing to risk to save each one of us that are gathered here, would be willing to say tonight, God, through your grace and through your power, this year, I am going to work to my utmost to bring at least one soul to the feet of Jesus. Are you willing to make that commitment this evening? Do you want to stand if you're willing to make that commitment? When you go home, you say, I'm going to reach one soul. It might be a friend. It might be a relative. Focus on an individual. It might be a fellow worker. It might be a stranger. It might be a person who lives on the street. But God wants us to work for one soul. You know, if we work for one soul, we have duped duplicate the number that we have here. Wouldn't that be marvelous? And those who are watching on television, wow, if they became involved and, and did it for one soul, the church would grow. We would finish God's work. Are you happy living in this world? Listen, in heaven we're not going to need iPhones. We won't need Twitter. 
I mean, we'll travel instantly from earth to heaven and to the planets. You know, it's something that really, that really is interesting to me is to see two individuals sitting by side, side by side and they're texting. In heaven, we're going to communicate. <laughs> face to face, mouth to mouth. Praise the Lord for your response. Now, how about we go out there after GYC and just use the energy that God has given us to do this? I'd like to make a second call. Perhaps there are some here who have not given their lives to the Lord Jesus. You're that one soul that Jesus came to die for, but you haven't made a commitment to Him. If you're that person, I would like to ask you to raise your hand right now and say, I'm going to give my life to the Lord Jesus. If He risked it all for me, I'm going to give my entire life to Him. Do you want to raise your hand at this time if you're in that category? I can't see very well because we have these lights in my face here, but is there anyone who has not made a commitment to Jesus Christ that would like to do that this evening by raising your hand? I want to have a special word of prayer for you tonight. I see some hands, several hands. It's very difficult. Could I ask you please to come forward? I know that that's a big request, but could I ask you to come forward? I, we have a sea of people out here and I just can't see all of the hands that are raised. Could you please come over to this side? I want to have a word of prayer with you. Please come quickly. I thank 3ABN for giving me some extra time tonight to present this message which I consider to be extremely important. Please gather right here in front. I'm going to have a special word of prayer for all of you. Don't delay. Jesus is calling you tonight. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow, you might say. Well, tomorrow isn't ours. We don't know if we'll be alive tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. We have several that are coming forward at this time. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit is working here. Is there anyone else that would like to come forward? Please work your way forward. I don't want to cut short this meeting without giving the opportunity to everyone who has heard the call of the Lord tonight to come forward and answer this call that Jesus is making to you. Not Pastor Bohr, Jesus. Through Pastor Bohr. Praise the Lord for this beautiful group. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.